Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous, and he is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it. Yet I'll hammer it out. Welcome to The Plays the Thing. That was King Richard II, recently deposed by his great enemy, Henry Bolingbroke, who is now King Henry. And he has banished Richard II in prison, and that was Richard trying in some way to think beyond the confines of his prison. We are so glad that you have joined us for... The Plays the Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. And you have reached with us Act 5 of Richard II. We're so glad that you are here with us for this penultimate podcast. We will do one more podcast on Richard II, a question and answer podcast. But today, Heidi, we give all of the answers to the questions about Richard II. We're going to settle them all. This We're is, this them is all. the time. This is the place today. Um, I, I want to harken back, Heidi, to uh, our very first episodes on Richard II. We, we talked about how there are kind of these two plots mm. and it, kind of an upper plot and a lower plot that are happening at the same time. Um, we're going to talk, you and I are going to talk first about the lower plot, which is just the plot that the action plot, the kind of crime plot, the king being deposed by his enemy plot. But we're also going to talk touch on this kind of upper level plot, which is I, I think we called it the metaphysical plot, which mm-hmm. is this question about what happens when a king who was placed on the throne by God, this divine right of kings, what happens when that king is deposed? And so we will definitely get a resolution to the lower plot, the kind of crime plot, deposition plot. And one of the other things that we'll be talking about today is whether or not there's a real resolution to that metaphysical plot. Um, But let's just jump into the deep end of Act 5, Heidi. So when we left Act 4, Richard has been imprisoned. And there's there's this wonderful scene where... Richard and Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke wants a peaceful transfer of power. He has mm-hmm. defeated Richard II on the battlefield. He has imprisoned Richard II. Um, and now he wants a peaceful transfer. And we, we kind of talked about, we were recording on the very day of a U.S. inauguration, what, like two weeks after there was the threat of an unpeaceful transfer of power. And we talked about how important it was for Bolingbroke to get Richard's sign-off on this transfer of power. He wanted it to be legitimate in some way. Okay, so now in the beginning of Act 5, that legitimate transfer of power has happened despite some of Richard's protests. And we join um, the king and his wife in prison. And she is downcast. Um, Is she ever going to see her husband again? Maybe they can run away. Maybe the guard will let them kind of escape and they'll, they'll run away never to return. They'll never bother bowling Brook. I want to ask you very briefly, do you have any thoughts about Richard's wife? She's, she's not one of the Queens that we, think of is like some of the great female Shakespearean characters in any thoughts on her, Heidi, is she, is she noteworthy to you? This scene is certainly noteworthy. 
it's yeah. it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful scene. Um, you're right, though. She doesn't have the the weight, the power, the complexity of many other queens. Uh, and we know that Shakespeare's perfectly capable of writing a strong female character. So it's not that. Uh, you know, in real life, this Richard really was married, but he was married to a child. And yeah. her relationship was not consummated. It was a purely political marriage. Um, and so there's nothing creepy going on in that relationship necessarily, other than, you know, the obvious marriage of, of a grown man to a child for political purposes. Uh, but there, she was like nine years old or something wow. when he wow. was deposed. And so this is entirely Shakespeare's imaginative experience of this parting. And it really is so lovely. Yeah. But I think one of the messages of this scene with the fact that the queen Richard's queen is not necessarily a strong central character in the narrative uh, is that, you know, Richard can't really share a stage, right? <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> That's a great point. He is bigger than anybody in the play. He takes over the play. He's, he's bigger even than the king who takes, who deposes him. Yeah. So he always occupies this central uh, role uh, and and he's a, he's a scene stealer, so to speak. So we don't yeah. even really get to know his wife, but their love uh, and their tenderness towards each other takes center stage in this particular scene. And it, it really is just so sad and lovely. After this, we, um, after their goodbye, we have a couple of scenes and I want to ask you why you think these scenes are in the play. So um, all Merrill and his father, the Duke, and his mother, the Duchess of York, uh, are, are the primary actors in Acts two and three of Act five. And there's this there's this moment where where the Duke discovers that his son Almero has a piece of paper in his pocket, and the Duke insists on seeing it. His son doesn't want to show it. The Duchess is like, what's the big deal? What's going on? The Duke finally gets him to read from this piece, or he reads this piece of paper, and he discovers that his son, Amaral, is has developed a plot against the new king, Ken, King Henry. Now, it's interesting because the Duke is one of, the Duke of York is one of the original defenders of Richard II. He does not want Richard to be deposed, but now he is kind of like taken on this new king and he is absolutely aghast that his son is plotting against the king. Okay, I'm going to use this moment to introduce this kind of metaphysical plot to us because the loyalty that York has, it seems, is much more to the position of king than its loyalty to a particular man, to mm -hmm. a particular king. And for me, that really ties neatly into this bigger question that Shakespeare is addressing, which is, how ought we think about a king that we believe was put there on the throne by God? And York gives one of the answers, doesn't he? Yeah, go York, on. Well, York says... <laughs> you show loyalty. That's right. It's the position. It's not the guy. It's the position. Mm. And I think we've got plenty of other characters in the play on Merrill himself, the plotter who will say, uh, and no, it's not about the position. It's about the man. I was loyal to the man, Richard. I am not loyal to Henry. Henry's going to be done away with, and I'm going to be central to it. Scene three, Amaral kind of like figures out that um, his dad is going to tell. His dad mm -hmm. is going to tell the new king. And if, he, if and when he does so, well, the king is going to put him to death. At a, at, is, the king's going to put him to death. So there's kind of a race off stage. The race is between Amaral and the duke. And we don't even know it. But also the duchess of York, like all three are racing to the throne room. So that the duke and the, the duke can say, uh, "My son was plotting against you." So the duchess can say, "Please don't kill my son." So Almero can say, "Please don't kill me." Mm -hmm. And the first one to arrive is Almero. He throws himself on the ground at the king's feet. He begs for mercy, and what do you know? 
the king gives him mercy. He shows mercy. He doesn't, I mean, he'd be fully within his rights to, you know, behead this traitor, Amaral, to be done with them, to spoil the plot, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my question, Heidi, is are we seeing a picture of King Henry as a just man? Uh, could we interpret this as, as weakness on his part? Like, what's the picture that we're getting now of the future ruler of England, Henry the Fourth? Okay, yeah, that is a great question. So we could interpret Henry's King Henry now. We can't call him Bolingbroke anymore. Right. Uh, we can interpret King Henry's um, response here in a couple of different ways. One, we can see him as a merciful and a just ruler, right? Here's the, the, the this is Shakespeare at his finest, I think, which we see throughout the play, uh, that there's always two ways to interpret any royal action, any kind of strategic action on the part of a of a politician in power, negotiating for, for power. Uh, so he could either be seen as a just and merciful ruler here who has true affection for his family, because of course, this is his blood aunt and uncle and his blood cousin, first cousin. Mm. Mm. So it could be loyalty, affection, um, on one hand. On the other hand, it could be political expediency because at this point, uh, he is trying to earn the respect and trust of all of the nobles who had turned against Richard because Richard did not show good faith to the to the nobles. Right. And so it could be seen then as him trying to display how different he is from Richard and then earn back the loyalty and trust not only of his family, but of the conspirators against him who can then turn back toward his side. Um, and this is a real thing that happened. I mean, not the family drama. We see that played out. That's, you know, that's Shakespeare's own invention. But this really happened in which there was a conspiracy. And then Henry did indeed pardon O'Murl, who then plotted against him later. So O'Murl is just a turncoat in real, in the historical line, yeah. although he's shown here as being, um, you know, truly loyal. He's got some ideals. Towards, yeah. towards yeah. his friend and cousin Richard. Um but this is, I think, a really complex scene because it shows in, in Act 4, we had, of course, again, Richard's such a scene stealer. If he's there, he's waxing poetical. He's making long speeches. He's having these, you know, internal dissonances that are displayed for, everyone, for all to see. He takes over. In his absence, we see, uh, then we have the ability to see some of the consequences of the deposement, the deposition mm. uh, played out in the realm and we see that it's tearing a family apart, right? Uh, yeah. And and that's then and two families. Richard is separated from his wife in scene one, and then this family's divided against itself in scene two and three. Scenes two and three, and it is the mercy of the king then that brings some level of reconciling. Although, again, at to your point, uh, we are left with the question: you know, what did he do it for? Uh, yeah. You know, was was it political expediency or was it true affection or a combination of both? We just we just don't know. And readers and listeners and watchers have to draw their own conclusions. Do you have an opinion on this? I, I was gonna. I came down the same place that you did. <laughs> I can see it either way. Mm-hmm. I can totally see it either way. Uh, this week, Heidi, um, my friend Madeline and I. Madeline is doing her PhD at USC in ancient classics and she's really good on Shakespeare. And so we did a, we did a one-off the plays, the thing podcast on a kind of obscure Shakespeare play called Cymbeline. Um, Weird play. A very, very, weird very play. strange play. Needs a lot of help. It needs a lot of help. So glad you did that. Yeah. We even, like, we kind of made the case and I'm going to try to pique readers or listeners interests um, that there's probably a better ending of Cymbeline written by a different author. Yes. And I'm not going to tell you who the author is. I think most listeners will recognize the name, but both Madeline and I agreed that the final act of Cymbeline is such a spaghetti structure plot. It's so messy and convoluted that we actually think that this other author did a better job. And he also, we also think the author did a better job with the treatment of Imogen who's the the heroine of the play. Okay. I I bring this up because Madeline, at one point we were talking about 
a particular character in Cymbeline, she said, I, I just, Shakespeare, sometimes I'm just like, where does he stand? And I, and I thought, I know, I know this is what's like so bewitching about the author and so frustrating about the author is that sometimes you, you can get caught up in the poetry and then when you step back and say, what is Bolingbroke doing there? You don't really know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's, um, and you, and I can honestly see it as a great credit to Shakespeare. Yes. Like that he, like we're all in different moments, double-minded. Yeah. We're all like divided in our motivations and our goals. And sometimes I think Shakespeare just absolutely understands that as well as any author in the world. And then other times I think, He's also being politically expedient because he's got dynamite in his hands. This, mm-hmm. Especially in this play. In exactly. His, yes, in his exactly. culture. He's super brave to have written this play, in my opinion. If you and I were to write a play about FDR, it, it's not that FDR's legacy is um, solidified. I think someone, like Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy is solidified. People are like, yes, we're like unequivocally, we are on his side. FDR is still politically kind of dynamite, you know? Um, And I think that Shakespeare is, he's holding dynamite in his hands. He knows that he's holding dynamite in his hands. And so it's probably politically expedient on his part to... It behooves uh, him to be careful. Exactly. And he certainly is careful. He's Um, very careful. And this act is extremely sympathetic to Richard in my opinion. Yeah, it is. And, I think you're right. And so there's, there's, which is in, which is a shift from the beginning. I mean, we get to see how unpopular he is with um, the conversation between York and the Duchess of York talking about Bolingbroke coming into London uh, and he's greeted with cheers. Whereas Richard is booed by the crowd and they throw mm-hmm. dust and ashes and rocks on his head and stuff. And so we do get to see in this scene how, or in this act, how very unpopular Richard was with the people and how welcoming they were to a new King, which is always a question that I had is that throughout the play, like, what do the people think about this? What is, yeah. what is, what is, are they welcoming Bolingbroke? They are indeed. Um, but we also see he, but even that walk, Tim, as you, as I'm sure you noticed, is modeled after the Via Dolorosa, the walk of Christ to the cross. Mm. So it, the idea of being jeered mm. in a in a uh, undeserved political, you know, crucifixion is uh, is I mean that is played out here. And so to your point, Shakespeare is extremely careful, and part of it. I think is his literary genius. And part of it is the fact that he was writing an extremely relevant political play in a, in a culture who is asking straight out the question of the divine right of Kings Yes, in Elizabethan England. And so, uh, and, and a culture that had endured generations of the war of the roses and the mm-hmm. Tudor struggle and the reformation and all of this bloody, uh, political and religious division. And he writes a play like Richard II. Yeah. That is a very brave thing to do, but he had to be really careful. And he was. Absolutely right. Heidi, I, um, you know, I used to teach at a a great books college at Gutenberg and we had a, a reading list that our students would go through from their first to their fourth year. And I think I counted, it was something like 163 books that they would read all or part of. And one day as a kind of, um, I don't know, perverse joy. I, I tried to count the number of authors that were on that list that were either exiled hmm. or killed hmm. by the political party that they were, that was ruling at the time. And the number was really, really high. I think it was better than 50%. Wow. Which, and and I think that Shakespeare, right? And and I think that Shakespeare would have been one of those if he was not so careful. He Mm. would have been exiled. He would have been, I mean, I don't know that he would have been killed, perhaps, if he got brazen enough. Um. But the temper of his time was such that he, he, 
he was dealing with very powerful potential foes Agreed. and their legacies. And mm-hmm. so. Right. Well, and he wasn't writing high art. He is now, but in right. his time, he wasn't. And uh, there's, there's a complexity and a nuance. And he leaves as a literary and a genius and a playwright, he, he leaves the actors to make choices. So mm-hmm. you could play Richard very sympathetically and Bolingbroke very, very unsympathetically, uh, or you can reverse that depending on the political climate, right? And so uh, right. There's, there's, there's a lot of nuance that we're reading now that might not have been so obvious to an Elizabethan audience just going out and having some drinks and going to the theater. Uh, but it, that's why Shakespeare's so tricky, Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. why they're like they're, they're so bottomless. If you if you want to go mining for jewels, you can find them or you can just, you know, look at the blank wall in front of you. So Heidi, I want to return to this question in a second about whether or not we're getting a picture of Henry King Henry the 4th that's admirable because he handles um a very tricky political situation as the conclusion of the play. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about that just a little bit later in the podcast. I I really want to focus now on scene five. Great. Which the opening half of that scene is an incredible monologue by Richard II in prison. It's the one that we heard the beginning of uh, when when the show began. And I'm going to make a little... I'm going to do something that we don't often do on this podcast, which is I'm going to read a literary critic. I I think speaking for myself, I kind of, I I pride myself in not leaning too hard on reading what critics say. I I really try my best to kind of make up my own mind, but every once in a while I'll read something um, or I'll remember something from the past and I'll think, I, I, that's really great criticism. So, I'm glad you're doing that. It's fun. I feel like on for our listeners who listen to the flagship show and Patreon, we try really hard not to be too technical over over yeah, there to really just right. focus on our own impressions and thoughts and as uh, as literary enthusiasts. But it is fun on the plays the thing to kind of bring in some of that technical and some of that, yes. uh, some of that scholarly and, and, and bring that into our conversations on the show. So I'm, I'm really glad you're doing it. Tell, tell us, what are you going to read? I'm going to read from about a biography by of Shakespeare called Will in the World by Stephen Greenblatt. It's a great book. A great book. Stephen Agreed. Greenblatt, he's I think. a great taught, writer. Very accessible so good. writer. Very accessible. And he knows how to tell a story while he's telling history. Um, so I, I would recommend if readers want to kind of really dig into who Shakespeare was, Greenblatt is a great guide. And Greenblatt says something really, I think, important about two-thirds of the way through his biography of Shakespeare. And he says it. he starts to see something happen within Shakespeare, the artist, and it really starts to take root in this play, specifically in the monologue that we played at the top of the show. What Greenblatt says is that in earlier plays, Shakespeare sometimes would, of course, he has, he has monologues in earlier plays, but many of those monologues, let me say it a different way, few of those monologues are and um, the character kind of scrutinizing himself how he thinks. So um, he gives an example of Richard III, a play that was written about three years before Richard II, and he gives a monologue of Richard III speaking to himself and he compares it to the monologue that we're discussing right now. I'm going to read two sections of both monologues, and then I'm going to read a little bit about what Greenblatt says about this development. He calls it of interiority. He thinks that like Shakespeare like latched onto something and it really blossoms in Hamlet. It really blossoms in Julius Caesar. And it's this sense of interiority that characters are developing this, this ability to look at their own kind of process of thinking. And he thinks it's a tremendous artistic advancement. So let me just read 
these two monologues, the first from Richard III. And, and Greenblatt says, listen to how kind of comparatively wooden it is compared to the monologue from Richard the Richard II. So this is from Act 5, Scene 5 of Richard III. Uh, Richard is by himself in a tent uh, on the battlefield. It is now dead midnight. Cold, fearful drops stand on my trembling flesh. What do I fear? Myself? There's none else by. Richard loves Richard. That is, I am I. Is there a murderer here? No. Yes, I am. Then fly. What? For myself? Great reason. Why? Lest I revenge. Myself upon myself? Alack, I love myself. Wherefore? For any good that I myself might have done unto myself? Oh no. Alas, I rather hate myself. For hateful deeds committed by myself. I am a villain. Yet I lie. I am not. It's a moving monologue. It's, it's, it, you can see Shakespeare's fingerprints yes. on it. But it's also compared to Act 5, Scene 5 of Richard II. That monologue, I think, is, it's very wooden. It's halting. It's, um, there's not a sort of like flow. And it's, and it's very, what's the right way to describe it? It's sort of... Um, it's a bit stilted. It's stilted. It's thesis, uh, antithesis, And it's resolution. a bit on the nose, yeah. right? It doesn't have these beautiful conceits and metaphorical connections and this like psychological subtlety and depth. It's really straightforward. It, uh, it's, yeah, it's, that's, that's kind of my thoughts on it. It's good, mm-hmm. but it's not great. It's not yet great. And now let's compare it to Richard II. I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for, my, but, and for, because the world is populous, and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it. Yet I'll hammer it out. My, bra- my brain I'll prove the female to my soul, my soul the father, and these two beget a generation of still-breeding thoughts. This play, oh, excuse me, Greenblatt says that much of the difference in the two passages, of course, has to do with these diff- they're different characters. But, and here's a quote from Greenblatt, the turn from one character to the other itself is significant. It signals Shakespeare's growing interest in the hidden processes of interiority. Hmm. Locked in a windowless room, Richard II watches himself think, struggling to forge a metaphorical link between his prison and the world, reaching a dead end, and then forcing his imagination to renew the effort. Yet I'll hammer it out. The world crowded with people is not, as he himself recognizes, remotely comparable to the solitude of his prison cell, but Richard wills himself to generate, out of what he pictures as the intercourse of his brain and soul, an imaginary populace. What he hammers out, and I think this is really interesting, really, really just kind of, just what a great insight. What he hammers out is a kind of inner theater akin to that already found in Richard III's soliloquy, but with a vastly increased complexity, subtlety, and above all, consciousness. Now the character himself is fully aware that he has constructed such a theater, and he teases out the bleak implications of the imaginary world he has struggled to create. Here's more from the monologue, Heidi. Thus play I, in one person many people, and none contented. Sometimes am I king. Then treason makes me wish beggar myself a beggar. And so I am. Then crushing penury persuades me I was better when a king. Then I am kinged again, and by and by think that I am unkinged by Bolingbroke, and straight am nothing. But whate'er I be, nor I, nor any man that but man is with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. I think that like Greenblood is really on to something here, Agreed. right? It's, yes. It, it, it's one thing. I mean, authors have always tried. No, I should, that's an exaggeration. 
recently authors have tried in some way to kind of emulate the rambling discursus that is our inner thoughts. Because if you pay attention to your inner thoughts at all, you know, you rarely operate, uh, operate according to kind of like a strict, logical, coherent flow. You kind of, I mean, if you're like me, you kind of lurch from one idea to the next idea to another idea. Sometimes you go up, sometimes sideways, sometimes down. Sometimes, a generation you know. of still breeding thoughts. Yeah. And for Shakespeare to kind of figure mm. out how not just to reflect what Richard II's inner thoughts are, but to make him sort of aware of those inner thoughts. And I think the chief thing is to make it theatrical, to put it on a stage and have people want to lean forward and listen I just think it's just a triumph. Every once in a while, I lean back from Shakespeare and I'll read a few lines and I'll just think, oh my goodness, who else could write this? And then every once in a while, also, I'll see the kind of insight of what his artistic instincts are producing. And I think, who else has done this? Who else has done this, Heidi? No, I mean, Shakespeare is completely unique. There's nobody like Shakespeare. And at, at you're exactly right. And even on a structural level, it's brilliant, this interiority on the part of Richard, because if you look at it, if you zoom out from the play, this this is the only play in which you have a, a usurper in the form of Bolingbroke who doesn't have a single soliloquy or monologue. Nothing. No interiority. That's a great, He's that's a great point. entirely exterior, right? And the contrast of that to Richard, who is self-absorbed and who does have these brilliant soliloquies and these long speeches that other people hear and this, this constant kind of obsession with his inner life, which perhaps does that render him unfit for an external role as king? Whereas Bolingbroke, who's going to be a better king, seems to have, we have no insight into his inner life and his interiority. And the contrast of that, even on a structural level, is absolutely brilliant. And then when you go into the content of Richard's uh uh, of Richard's soliloquies, of his monologues, of his inner life, as well as his, you know, kind of taking over the stage and giving these long speeches for other people to hear. Uh, and he's such a poet and he's so brilliant um, as a character. So I'm really, you're right. Greenblatt is really, he's really onto something. And it, and then for Shakespeare to take that even further in later plays mm-hmm. with, to your point, Hamlet, mm-hmm. who of course is the king of the soliloquy. Yeah. And there's nothing better than Hamlet if you want interiority in the history of literature, except maybe Raskolnikov. Yeah. So there's, there's, there is this greatness emerging. And that's one of my favorite things about Shakespeare too, is to see the development of his genius and almost his glee and delight in what he can do with words and character and story as he develops his greatness in his career is just, I mean, it's so compelling. The famous monologue from Hamlet, I mean, you can hear the interiority kind of like Hamlet scrutinizing his own thoughts in the famous monologue to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. He's looking, he's kind of examining himself while he's asserting, you know, should I do this? Should I take my own life or should I like make battle against these travails that are facing me? He's looking at these two things warring within himself and it just, oh my goodness. And he just like reasons along the way. And it's like, it makes such a compelling soliloquy because as an audience member, I, I, as an audience member, when you hear Hamlet, it doesn't take much of a turn to put yourself in his shoes, to consider whether or not suicide is the right choice given the circumstances that he's in. And then he turns and he says, ah, but wait, what waits us on the other side of the grave? is so terrifying because we don't know what it is and you follow right along with them. It's just magnificent. And I do think Greenblatt's right. This is where we start to see the real germination of that interiority take place specifically in this monologue, act five, scene five. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, Heidi, let's turn again to Bolingbroke. So he has pardoned Almero. He banishes him, but he lets him live with his life. But there is another plot. This time the plot is against Richard. So another character named Exton hears, overhears the king say something um, along the lines of who will rid me of this uh, turbulent priest. Don't you hear that in it? Okay. Yeah. This is what I was going to ask you about. The Henry the second. Yeah. (laughs) So is that deliberate? I mean, what's, is that phrase? I think it is, but I don't, I don't know. And I meant to look it up, but I didn't, but for our listeners who are um, wondering, uh, there's a very, there's a very famous moment in history in which Henry the second, a much earlier King, a medieval King, um, when he uh, he is having political and religious conflict with his counselor, his one-time best friend and counselor, Thomas Becket, who is now the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they've been warring and fighting with each other over these important church and state issues for many, many years. And Henry, out of frustration, says one day in the uh, while sitting on the throne, surrounded by his nobles and knights, and he says, "Who will rid me of this turbulent priest?" And then, uh, and his buddies I will. Yeah, his small cadre of knights decide to take this calling upon themselves, and so they go and they murder Thomas a Becket in the in Canterbury Cathedral. Very, very famous moment in history, um, and of course that turned Thomas Becket into a martyr. And and so I do think that that is intended on the part of Shakespeare, uh, with the uh, because of the connotation of then. Thomas Beckett becoming this like rallying point as a martyr. I think it's another yeah. nod, another careful nod on Shakespeare's part to Richard being Richard's martyrdom. Because the line that Exton overhears is from the king is, have I no friend will rid me of this living fear? It sure does sound like a gentle mm-hmm. kind of allusion to the Henry II Beckett um, Mm-hmm. Intrigue. So Exton, Exton hears this. Exton yeah. does it on his own. He does. Um, which then creates a chiasm, right? Ah. In the structure of the play. We haven't talked about chiasms for a while, Heidi. And I, this I, is a very, very chiastic play, but I didn't want to harp on it because it's such a complex play. But this one's important. A chiasm is an, an arc of trajectory within a plot. Uh, so that the certain the the beginning mirrors the end of the play is a very simple way to explain it for these purposes. It becomes a little much more complex than that if you're charting plot points and all that stuff in Shakespeare and another um, uh, classical works. The Bible's very chiastic, mm-hmm. um, but in this particular play, what we're looking for in the chiastic structure is the the first scene of the play mirrors the last scene right, of the play. The right. same thing happens. And as the same, same thematic questions as well as plot points, because the opening scene of the play is a, a trial scene in which the king is essentially accused in an oblique way of plotting the murder of someone standing in his way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and other people are judged and condemned for what we think might be the king's actions. Right. Right. And that exact same thing closes the play. Um, readers who are familiar with uh, the Old Testament, the, the chiasm you probably, I think the chiasm you're probably most familiar with is uh, the seven days of creation. So the first day, God separates light from light. Fourth day, he creates the big light and the little light, the sun and the moon. And then second day is creates the, separates the waters from the land. And then the mirroring, the chiastic mirroring is the fifth day, the animals that exist in the oceans. And then sixth day, excuse me, third day is the land. Um, and then the sixth day is the animals that exist upon animals the land, land. including humanity. And then it kind of culminates according to the chiastic structure with the seventh day, which kind of stands alone. The seventh day is not mirrored. 
it stands alone. So like the culmination is the rest of God foreshadowing the people of God coming into their rest also. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if you would- that's a good, that's a very good example of a, of, of a chiasm that is, you know, kind of easy to understand. Yes. And it's, I think we are used to kind of an A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D rhyme structure, but um, ancient Near East and in Semitic poetry, they're going to lean pretty heavily on a more chiastic structure. I think it's just like a nice little literary bit of knowledge to put in your tool bag. Well, and we recognize, I'm firmly convinced at least, that the human mind and soul recognizes a chiastic structure is very satisfying, Mm -hmm. uh, even though we can't consciously necessarily put into words why it is. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why Shakespeare's plays have remained so very popular, is there's something about, I mean, there's a million reasons for that, but even the structuring is very... um, orderly, very satisfying to, I think, the mind and the soul. And we pick up on it in an unconscious way. And Mm. I I think that this particular play has that. We have this unclaimed political murder the king's probably responsible for, um, but never never admits it, right? right? And that opens and closes the play. And then it creates a lot of uh, kind of this it's, it's a satisfying ending, I think, and maybe we'll talk about that. But at the same time, it leaves, it leaves a lot of things unanswered. And uh, there's a lot of prophetic speeches in the play too. And those things are taken up in the future plays. Richard II, as we have said a couple of times, it stands alone, but it's also part of a, uh, a four-part series. And it's the opening series, which and that four-part series is chiastic because we have uh, a king being usurped at the beginning and creating all this drama. And then we have like a great king at the end who resolves and solves all of this drama um, in Richard V. Um, and so, or excuse me, in Henry V. Thank you for, um, I'm glad I caught that. In uh, Henry V at the end of this for um, this tetralogy. So, um, but I, I do think that this, you're you're bringing up the point about Exton. He's a new character, an entirely new character in the play, uh, and so I do think again that's a little bit of a nod to um, uh, to the Henry the Second and Thomas a Becket that it's not it's not some conspiracy, right? right? It's just some random guy who goes to do the bidding of the king, right? Right, or what he thinks is the bidding of the king. Okay, so. Um... That character is successful. Mm. He, Exton, kills Richard II in the penultimate scene of the play. Um, there's a skirmish, and but ultimately Richard II dies. And now the final scene of the play is Exton, among others, um, in the court of King Henry. And Exton has this big reveal. He reveals... King Henry, great news. I killed your enemy, Richard II. And Bolingbroke, now King Henry, his response, I think, is fascinating. Uh, Heidi, we just mentioned the Old Testament. Did his response remind you of any Old Testament characters? I'm not going to steal your thunder no, on this you one. I know you were the one who caught it. So I'm going to throw this thunder back to you. What <laughs> Bible story does this remind you of, Tim? It reminds me of King David, hmm. who is the enemy of King Saul, um, hearing the news from a soldier that the soldier has killed King Saul. Now, this is coming on the heels of like chapters and chapters of David running for his life from King Saul. King Saul is a bad king. He was once the Lord's anointed, but David knows that he is like the upcoming anointed one. And David, after Saul's death, is um, sitting with his men and a guy comes up to David, hey, great news. I offed King Saul for you. And David should be thrilled, but David is angry. And I, I even wrote down... Um, the verse, then David said to him, said to the man who killed Saul, how is it you are not afraid to stretch out? How is it you are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. I see Henry's response to Exton is very similar. 
Richard yeah. was his enemy as Saul was David's enemy. But he can't celebrate the death of Richard II. There's something about King Henry that's, I think, really meant to be admired here. He's not vengeful. And also, he really, I think, it, it's a strange thing, Heidi. I think he respects the fact that Henry, excuse me, that Richard was the anointed one. So it makes like the whole metaphysical plot that we've talked about, like what happens when someone kills the king that's been put mm-hmm. on, you know, the throne by God. Well, Henry deposed the king that was put on the throne by God. And yet he seems um, to like really, you know, disdain the action of killing the one that he deposed. Right. Well, and he puts the mark of Cain on on Exton and banishes him and exiles him. By the way, another chaotic moment, because it's the same response Richard had in scene one was to exile, right? Um, But it could also be, you know, is it virtue or is it political expediency? He can't be seen as murdering Richard, right? So did he... This is this is another question. Then at the end of the play, uh, is this a is this a response of virtue? Is this like a lay not your hand upon the Lord's anointed, mm-hmm. or is it political expediency to protect his reputation so he's not seen as murdering Richard? However, however, to affirm exactly what you're saying though, in future plays in this tetralogy, there is an existential dread that haunts. Henry and his son, mm. Hal, who's mentioned for the first time mm. in, in scene six here. Um, he talks about his son and he says, you know, and we will, I mean, listeners, do not fear. There are going to be plenty of conversations about Prince Hal in the future. He's a major character, but he's mentioned for the first time here. And so we know, we know at the end of this play that, that, that King Henry has an heir and that the heir is not turning out well so mm-hmm. far. Um, and both of these men are haunted by what by what Henry does in this play yeah. in the future. And so I do think that you're exactly right. There is this mark of Cain upon them as well. Yeah. This the usurper and the king who comes and the kings who come after him have to carry the weight of having killed, quote unquote, the Lord's anointed. So no matter how much he tries to distance himself from it, it wasn't my fault. I right. didn't tell him to do it. I'm gonna banish right. him, right? You notice he doesn't execute him though. No, he doesn't. He doesn't execute it. So there is, you know, it could be, it could be from political expediency. It could be from true horror at what this man has done and he didn't want it done. He just wanted Richard in the tower. However, either way, there is no doubt that there is now an existential wound, not only in the the king as a person, but in the nation. And that's what's going to be explored in the rest of the tetralogy. And that is exactly the concluding thought of the play, which I'm going to read, Heidi, and then I'm going to ask you for your Please closing do. thoughts on Richard II. Kind of, what should we think of Richard II at the conclusion of this play? So the final speech of the play be- belongs to King Henry, and the first lines are to Exton. He's banishing Exton, and then he turns to the lords and kind of tells him, hey, in light of everything that's just happened, let me just tell you how I, how I feel about everything. So first to Exton. With Cain, go wander through shades of night and never show thy head by day or light. Lords, I protest. My soul is full of woe that blood should sprinkle me to make me grow. It's a great line. Come, mm-hmm. mourn with me that I do lament and put on sullen black incontinent. I'll make a voyage to the Holy Land to wash this blood off from my guilty hand. March sadly after. Grace, my mornings here in weeping after this untimely beer. Beer being B-I-E-R, um, funeral ceremonial. Isn't a beer a, um, isn't it a fire? B-I-E-R? I should know this. I really want to, I really want to know the answer. Yeah, to that I don't know the answer to that. And just dazzle you with my <laughs> incredible knowledge. However, I have no idea what a beer is. A I, th- I thought it was barge? a coffin. Maybe it is a coffin. I thought it was the coffin itself. You know what? So, that segues anyway. us perfectly into yes. um, 
Q and A. Maybe one of our listeners <laughs> can give the what a. a beer is. Yeah, somebody asked what a beer is. Um, Heidi, final thoughts. What do you think about Richard II? I mean, you love this play. I, I, I love this. I play. sense that you're kind of fascinated with the character Richard II. Also, you get yes. to the end of this play again. What do you think of him? Well, it's it's hard to separate my own opinions or thoughts on this issue with kind of my obsession with Shakespeare's brilliance in the play, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I like the direct question, like pick a side, take a stand. <laughs> um, and I'm going to answer it without vacillating and say that I am very sympathetic mm-hmm. to Richard mm-hmm. here. And and I, I have a very medieval mind, I hope, I want to, um, and that... I I think I do believe mm. in I do believe in the sacred in a sacred and sacramental vocational call. Mm-hmm. Meaning if you are the king then you are the king. It's it's ontological. The same way that say in being a married person I am never going to ever again be a single person even if my husband were to die or separate from me in some way. Mm. I am ontologically changed by that vocation in my life. And um, meaning my very being is defined by that. But the same way that every every mother listening to this knows, I can never unmother myself. Mm. Even if I were to lose my children, mm. right? I am forever a mother. And I think that's Richard's, you know, his interiority is so much about that, right? How can I unking myself the same way I might, if my children, if I lose my children for some reason, they're taken from me, they die in some tragic way. There's something about me that could never unmother myself. And I think that he is asking the same question about kingship. And I think I believe that. Mm. So I think in my heart of heart, I think it was wrong what Bolingbroke did, even if he's a better king. Yeah. Now that's very different from my first reading. I was super sympathetic to Bolingbroke. Um, and partly because I was so intrigued by him. I just thought his lack of interiority was like fascinating. And I was like, get behind his eyes. Um, and so I, I, and I appreciated how pragmatic he was. And Richard was such a bad king. He was so bad at it. So like get a new one. Yeah. So that was my first and way more modern interpretation. Now that I've read the play several times and along with, um, I hope a more classical education. Now I think very differently and my response is different. Does that mean I think Richard was a good King? No, I don't. Mm. I think he's a terrible King. Um, but there's something about Kingship that I believe in at this point in my life. So I am sympathetic to him. Am Would I, I right? want to hang out with him? I don't know. Right, that's another story. Kind of obsessive. So anyway, go ahead. I want to ask you. You said question to you. on this. We I think it was Act Four. We talked about what do we think is is his chief flaw? If there's a tragic yeah, and flaw, I said sloth. It's mm-hmm. sloth, and and I want to say it again. I want to make sure that I understand you correctly. The sloth is not laziness. The sloth right. was a refusal to step into that role that God had provided him. He sort of, um, he accepts all the benefits of that role without accepting any of the kind of mirroring responsibilities of that role. Is that, am am I getting that wrong? Yes, because in classical Christianity, sloth is defined as a failure to love what ought to be loved. Mm. So it's a failure in love. And I think that that's what Richard did. I think he he failed to love his vocation. He failed to love the 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 kingship the mm-hmm. same way I might then fail to love motherhood as a vocation in my life. And and then that would bring with it a host of intense consequences consequences on everything I love. Right? Yeah. And everything I care about and everything I'm called to do my duty and my desire would be irretrievably broken if I failed to love the vocation of motherhood. And I think that's what happened to Richard. And I judge, I blame him for that. Yeah. But I am still, I still believe in, I think at this point in my life, I read this play very differently than I did through my more modern eyes. Mm. Um, 
at many, many years ago when I thought very pragmatically like a modern does. And now I have changed my way of thinking. My mind is different. And so I read it differently. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm intrigued to your point about interiority. I'm intrigued at my own change through that, mm. right? Yeah. Like how differently I read it now, having read so many classical texts and medieval texts and teaching them and kind of dwelling in them and living in them and not necessarily setting out to be formed and changed by that, but it just happens. And, and now I look at this and I think you squandered being a king and I blame you for that, but it was wrong to take that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my, my personal response to play. I can entertain lots of other interpretations, but that's my personal one. What about you? I struggle with Richard the second. It's kind of funny. I really love Coriolanus. Uh, Sarah Jane and I did the Coriolanus podcast maybe eight, nine months ago. We both love Coriolanus. Mm-hmm. He's just as like fraught and damaged as King Richard is. Absolutely. But he goes in this different way. He's like pure act. He has very little interiority. In some ways, he reminds me of Bolingbroke. You know, I, we, we, Sarah Jane and I kind of discovered, like, I think he has one moment where he talks directly to the audience. It's very brief. It's kind of inconsequential um, because he is a man who is driven toward action, toward warfare. Mm-hmm. And Richard is almost his inverse. He's self-obsessed. Great point. That's know? true. And, and I think his poetry is kind of more eloquent than is... Um, Coriolanus's, whereas Coriolanus's statescraft is like genius and sophisticated and insightful. So, like, I feel like choosing between these two men, I would choose Coriolanus, maybe because I just personally tend toward Coriolanus. And I, maybe like my worst self is more like Richard II. And so it's harder for me to have sympathy with his kind of Oh, I don't know. Yeah, his navel raising. Yeah, his melancholy. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But in the end, I kind of like him. I really like Richard II. I, I, I think more than I want to identify with him, I do identify with him. But I want to say also, I mean, That's a very individualistic kind of assessment of Richard II. It's, I think you would say, Tim, which was what that's what you asked for, though, right? Yeah, like, it is. What is, yeah, but I, I want to say, I really appreciate um, the kind of metaphysical minds mm-hmm. re- reproachment is that the right word of, of Richard II? I think I struggle so much with the fixed categories of the medieval mind. I think I struggle so much with that because I, because, and we're going to get like, I'm not going to go too deep. We, we could get into That's like totally fair, really <laughs> nitty gritty epistemic, yes. you know, like quandaries. Mm-hmm. And I, there's part of me that really wants to appreciate that human beings um, for all of our grand intentions often make our grand intentions into um, unshakable metaphysical categories. And I think Mm -hmm. oftentimes we get ourselves into deep trouble when we do that. And I think we have gotten ourselves into deep trouble when we have very often when we have said that one is the King's anointed. And because of a series of accidents of birth and genetic combustions, we kind of like hold to that. I think that we get into like, we can get into real serious problems, but now I want to say also like your case for his position is kind of like the metaphysical admiration and um, yeah, the metaphysical admiration of King Richard II as a King, as a vocation, as a divine calling I find it really appealing while also recognizing the real threats therein. There's a huge problem with it. And I think that that's the whole point of the play is that's, that is the question of the play. And it is, I think, left hanging at the end of the play, even though there's a, there's a 
structurally satisfying ending. I think, like I said, recognize the chiasm, even though it ends on kind of a cliffhanger. You're like, this feels satisfying, but I'm not sure why. Right. And I think it's that. But, um, you know, there was a king and then he got deposed and now there's a new king. That's a pretty, that's, that's a whole story, right? The end. Yes. And that, um, but the question is still in the air. That's, and, and that's the thing that Shakespeare just presents to us, this question. You've got a great poet uh, who's, who can be very charming and personally engaging, and he's a terrible king. Not only is he terrible, but he's not a bad person. And I think that's what's so important about this play. It's not, that's why it's not Richard III, right? Which Richard III is a villain. He's a bad right, man. Right. Doesn't deserve to be king. He doesn't, he's just, he, he's so awful as a human being. Right. And that's not Richard II, right? You might have like a response and think he's kind of annoying or whatever, which he is, but he's not terrible. He's not like immorally terrible. He's right. not done anything irretrievable or irrevocable. Um, but he's a bad king and he's laid waste the kingdom. He's just, he's bad for England. And then, but he's the king, right? Yeah. And then, And then you have this kind of tragic trajectory in which our sympathies are against him. And then Shakespeare just like masterfully makes us kind of sympathetic towards him. And then it's very clear that, that Henry, that Bolingbroke, Henry the fourth is going to be better at being a King. Yeah. So he's, he's more pragmatic. He's a better leader. He has, he's, he's better. And the people like him, mm -hmm. he's going to bring stability to the realm. And, and so even his son is going to grow the, up at some point. Yes. Yeah, so to your point, to your exact point, the, the the rigid structure of the medieval hierarchy is on the line in this play. Yes. That is the question of the play. Yes. It's the problem of the play. And when you get to the end of the play, there is a point counterpoint to it. Shakespeare's like, do you want a better king or do you want the divine right of kings? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There you go. Right. And I'd say, I'm like, I think I want the divine right of kings. And you're kind of like, I think I want a better king. Yeah. And both of those answers are fine. Yeah. Both of those answers are legit. So what we have, I think, is at the end of this play, we had two plots. We had the deposition plot, king versus king. That one was neatly resolved in that we have a different mm -hmm. king now. The old king yeah. is off the throne and dead. And the he's new dead. Is, yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, it's all wrapped up. It's tied right. up. And the new king has an heir. And so yes. the future is also secure. Absolutely. But to your point, the closing speech of the play demonstrates this unease, even with the new cat who's on the throne, yeah. that the metaphysical plot is left untied. It's, it's still loose. It's unresolved. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a great way to conclude this play, Heidi. Very Agreed. well done. You steered us mic right dropped. to it. I'm just going to drop my pen because I don't have a mic. So. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that you can join the conversation online on Facebook through the Close Reads discussion group. We're also on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. You can also reach us via email if you write to Close Reads Podcasts at gmail.com. And also we've got an email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Um, Heidi, we'll get together one more time for the question answer episode, which is always a great source of both delight and consternation because we often get stumped <laughs> by our very capable listeners. I'm totally looking up what a beer is. Okay, I'm good, not going to get stumped on good. that. So, Someone's out there screaming. It. Someone right now is in their right? kitchen screaming at us. Like, how did you people yeah. get a podcast when You're you right. don't know what a beer is? How did you is? get a podcast? <laughs> your license should be revoked. Well, you're probably right. Hey, hey, um, one last Since piece. I just said, like, bring back the monarchy. I'm going to get canceled. <laughs> That's right. They're definitely going to take your license now. Yeah. Um, hey, looking forward on the plays, the thing here is the docket for the coming year. And I'm not giving these an order. We are kind of slowly securing the order and the guests that will be on each show. But here's what you've got to look forward to during the co coming season of the plays, the thing we are going to do a family favorite the youthful, the story of two lovers torn apart, Romeo and Juliet. That will be uh, probably with Sarah Jane Bentley and Heidi, if we can work out Sarah Jane's schedule. 
We're also going to tackle Midsummer Night's Dream, which has got to be the most popularly acted Shakespeare play among high oh, schools, I think. That's yeah. my hunch. We are going to do the sequel to Richard II. Heidi, we're going to do King Henry IV, part one. Part one. I can't wait. We're going to do Taming of the Shrew. Um, our friend, Matt Bianco, we're going to try to get him. He loves Taming yeah, of the he's Shrew. he's crazy about this play. Uh, after this show is released, we're going to release a one-episode version of the Obscure Play Cymbeline with Madeline Wheeler. And that was, I think, a really good show. And if you if you don't want to watch the whole, you know, an entire play Cymbeline, we understand completely. And if you want to find out who the reader is that both Madeline and I think improved on Shakespeare, uh, listen to that one. It'll drop after uh, the Q&A episode of Richard II. And finally, the big uh, podcast that we will do this year is we are going to do it's probably Shakespeare's most famous play, most critically acclaimed dun, dun, dun. play, uh, most audience adored play, maybe with the exception of Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth. Wow. Did you hear that doorbell just go off? It's kind of ominous. I did. It's it's like, oh, it's like the off um the offstage knocking in, in Oh, it Macbeth. is in Macbeth. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna do Hamlet this year hamlet and we're trying mm-hmm. to secure andrew kern to come on the show and uh do hamlet with us so that's what you've got uh, when to you say trying to, to secure there is zero chance that he will let us do hamlet without him well, so. I've, he's turning into this i'm sorry i'm gonna say it he's be, he's being say a little it. bit of a diva about this i've been like hey bro he is when can we do hamlet yeah. he's like gosh i'm really busy he did in fairness he did get ill he's trying to kind of like make up for lost he's time. had covid for like a hundred years yeah, right it's time it's time drink lot of water yeah and come on hamlet and come on yep, hamlet. that's right come do hamlet with us you weirdo that's our that's our invitation that's, our, that's right that's our invitation how could you refuse hey heidi great episodes yeah. we will see you this has been so fun been thank really you so fun. much for letting me come on richard the second absolutely and we'll obsess and wax eloquently and probably richard myself so hey we'll see you for the q a episode